All right, today's passage is in Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8, and that's on page 11 in the Bibles around the room. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of those as a gift from us. When I'm finished reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll reply, thanks be to God. And we say this because we are thankful to have God's word in front of us. So Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I pray that you speak through Pastor Mark today and open our ears and hearts to your word. Let us stand amazed at how powerful and how mighty you are. Amen. Good morning, Living Stones. Morning. Glad you're here. I'm Pastor Mark, one of the pastors here. And I, and if you're a guest, we warmly welcome you, and we're glad you're here. And uh, for some of you, tomorrow's a day off. Yeah, for some, maybe like one of you, sounds like. All right. <laughs> it is a day off. And that... I just want to start by, by recognizing uh, tomorrow. I think we would be remiss because of the values that our church has. But more than that, because, because of God himself and the Bible, tomorrow is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. birthday. And uh, sometimes, doctor, he was a pastor. He loved Jesus. And, um, and two years ago, at his 50th anniversary of his murder, um, me and some friends, we went to Memphis to be part of the national celebration um, at the hotel where he was assassinated. It was one of maybe uh, one of the most profound moments of my entire life. And uh, some two minutes of complete silence while a bell rang out 50 times. And there were speakers from all over, those who were with him on that very day and his platform and those who went through the civil rights movement and the whole thing. It was profound. It was amazing. And one of the things that was said about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King that day um, was something he had said about his death or in his death. What do you want to be remembered? And uh, he said this, and it struck me then, still strikes me today in light of tomorrow and in light of our series. He says this, I'd like somebody to mention that day that I am gone, that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. And I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't, uh, I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And when you look at his readings, his commitment is to the Lord Jesus, to the image of God in people, and to the flourishing of all people. So I think sometimes we think that Dr. Martin Luther King had kind of one people group in mind, but when you listen and read his words, his whole idea was everybody rises. And if everybody flourishes, 
That looks like heaven. And we're in this attribute of God series. The other thing that's profound is when you read his writings, you realize that the image of God that, that Dr. Martin Luther King is referring to is God himself, his attributes that he innately shares himself with others. And he was an incredible, humble, sacrificial example that the attributes of God are not just something to talk about, but they literally change the way that we relate to God, but they change the way that we relate to everybody else. And that we need to know this God. And when we rightly know this God, it, he rightly begins to be displayed, not only in our spiritual worship, but in our everyday relationships around us and in and, 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 um, issues like justice and oppression, both here in the States and globally. And it's because of the very attributes of God and the image of God, those attributes that God has shared in us, that we believe in an incredibly diverse church. And so tomorrow, don't just let a day go by and it's just a Monday you have off. Contemplate these things. I challenge you to read Dr. Martin Luther King. I challenge you, you could read letters from a Birmingham jail in a day, in just a little bit of portion of that day, and really get an idea of how the attributes of God work themselves out. And, uh, and, and he wanted not only to be committed to people, but committed to the Lord Jesus in these things. And I just think, what an example. And, um, and it teaches us all. So I didn't want to just pass that on because tomorrow is such a great day for a great man. And this, so this morning, the attribute of God that we are considering is this attribute of God's power, omnipotence. And, um, and we're going to do that out of Genesis 17. And when I think of power, I often go back to my dad. My dad was an incredibly powerful guy. I mean, some of you know uh, you know, special forces, all that kind of stuff, military, but he was just a strong man. He went through a lot. He, he, he suffered a lot. Um, and um, from both the family he grew up in and where he grew up in and kind of rural Indianapolis and um, stories that, like sh shooting his dinner at nights and things like that to feed his, his brother, his uh, he had seven brothers and one sister. And he had amazing stories, really, really strong man. And when I think of power and strength, I, I go back to my dad, and there's multiple, multiple stories I can draw from, but there's one in particular that just strikes me. And, and some of you know I, I grew up kind of in a, in a rough area right out uh, in Long Beach, and um, we grew up in a small kind of house, two-bedroom, six kids, two parents. At one point, I lived in the garage, and that was we had government cheese. And I'm not even, that stuff's good, I'm telling you. Um, government cheese is just now repackaged Velveeta. That's all it is. And, uh, and it makes them, but I lived that life. That was my life. And we were, we had a meager upbringing. We didn't have much. And, um, and we lived in a rough neighborhood. And it, it meant that my dad um, was often, had to be tough for the sake of protecting of our family. And this one time I was hanging out with a neighbor kid and uh, this, cat, this kid's dad was out drinking for a lot of that day. And he finally came home and he was, he was drunk and, and he was scary and he was threatening, and he was angry, and, and he had kind of disciplined his son, and I got scared, and I, I ran out of the house, and he came after me, calling me names, and trying to get me and stuff, and I ran into my house, and slammed the door, and I'm crying, I'm real young, I was probably seven, and, uh, and I run into the house, and my dad is there, and he says, what's going on, what, you know, and I said, and I, I told my neighbor's name was Steve, and I said, Steve was trying to get me, and he's not right, I don't know what's wrong with him, he's angry, he's mad, 
And at that point, Steve was, was trying to get to our house and break in. And I remember my dad, in just all of his calmness and perfect kind of strength, opened the door and put his hand against the door jamb. And, and my dad at that time was in his mid-50s, because I was born when my dad was 50. And so he was older, but man, he was strong. And, and Steve was not a small guy, and he puts his hand against the door jamb, and Steve is just trying to get into the house and pointing fingers and yelling. And my dad just calmly talked him down, but with strength would never let him in. And we were behind him, small little house I grew up in, and we were behind my dad in the living room. And I'm a mess, I'm scared, but my dad was so strong. And that, that reminds me, it's, it's an example to me in many ways of the power of God. Because the power of God is, is a strong arm. Sometimes, you know, we want the power of God to be like in a big display. My dad didn't tackle him, and he could have. He, he could have thrown down. He would take all of you. He just would. That was my dad. But he was in calmness and in complete control, but so powerful. And yet human, and ultimately a few years ago, 2015, my dad passed away, and so ultimately showed that his strength was fleeting. But it reminds me of God's strength. And, and I come to Isaiah 59.1, when I think about the omnipotence, the power of God, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. You know what that means? It means that God's arm is so strong, it's just up against the door jam, and there's nothing that is going to get through. That we can hide behind God. That's what his power means. And yet, unlike my dad, who ultimately in weakness and in humanity became frail, God doesn't. That God's hand is not too short to save. That his power encompasses everything in life, including salvation itself. We're going to look at this story out of Genesis chapter 17 that's all about the power of God. But I'm going to, I'm going to make, uh, th this is the direction I'm going in this morning. I do not, although we're going to talk about God's power, I do not think knowing God is powerful is our problem. I think trusting that God is powerful is our problem. And we see that in, in Genesis 17. Look at in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, <laughs> Abram's old, right? He's an old head here, right? Abram is 99. I just kind of side note. Abram and the story of Abram shows us that there is no age in which God is done with you. There is no age in which God's power cannot be used in you. And I think sometimes we look forward to the day I can just retire, relax, you know, look for seashells on the shore, something like that. But it might be when you're 99 is the time that God does something amazing in your life. And I, I think when I, when I look at, at people who have aged in my own family, sometimes I grow sad. I grow sad that their life becomes kind of sitting down and watching game shows, and, and there's kind of this of given up pursuing the Lord. But I love this because at 99, when, when he was far out of his prime, God shows up. Man, that's amazing. We're never done. We're never done. And we need our 99-year-olds who are in love with God and are meeting with God, and are showing us what it's like to meet with God. But here, 
when it says Abram's 99 years old, there is a iceberg of context that we're immediately meant to know. First off, a few chapters before this, God encounters Abram and makes a promise to Abram. Abram, you're going to be a dad. Now, at that point, Abram was already past, past daddy age, right? And Sarai was past mommy age already, and she'd gone a lifetime barren and sad and brokenhearted because there was no heir. Abraham didn't have an heir, and Sarai never was able to fulfill the, the passion and desire and the expectation that was placed on her to be a mom. She was brokenhearted. And finally, God comes and says, hey, I'm going to give you a child to which they are elated. I mean, they laugh, right? Oh, yeah, now that I'm old, you're going to give me a child? Okay. But then they kind of believe it, and they get an inkling of hope. But then what happens? We find out nothing happens. God came, made a promise, but then years went by. And then what happens when we... We begin to wonder if God is really there. We begin to wonder if the promises of God are really going to come. We get antsy, and we begin to try to force the promise of God in our lives. And that's what they did, didn't they? Sarai, out of, out of being brokenhearted, out of very good motives, her heart was golden, came up with a really terrible plan. She's like, Abraham, I want you to, to, to marry our servant. And he's like, what? You know? It's like, sister wives up in here, what's going on? You know? And we look at it objectively, we're like, that's crazy, right? That is nuts. That's a crazy plan. But what, what is that plan? That plan is instead of waiting upon God and his promises, taking it in your own hands. And so he marries Hagar, and they have a son, Ishmael. And turns out Ishmael's not the promise. It turns out Sarai is jealous, of course, like you saw that one coming. Because Hagar's the mom, and she wants to be the mom, but ultimately she knows she's not the mom. And so she gets jealous, and she wants to, I mean, it's like Jersey Shore up in here. She wants to, to boot Hagar out, get rid of her, you know. She's brought shame to me. Well, you did it. And what's going on? What's going on is time has passed. God has done nothing. They took it in their own hands. And did it go well? No. At the end, she was more broken, more disheartened, in more grief and pain than she was when she was still waiting on God. Is that how it goes? We take it in our own hands. We take relationships in our own hands. Does it go well? No. We bypass what God has said for our, you know, his commands versus our desires, and we choose our desires over his commands. And then what happens? We end up more hurt, more broken, more shattered because we didn't want to wait upon God's promise. Thirteen years go by. Ishmael's now 13. That's what it is. That, that is the context of verse 1 of chapter 17. Roughly 22 years, something like that. Of, of waiting upon God, God not showing up, them taking it in their hands, and now left older, more desperate, broken, and maybe bitter against the Lord. And then God shows up at 99, and Sarai is 90. I think this, this brings us to one of, the, one of the points and the reason why the Bible is written in the way it does. Because sometimes we look at the Bible and we're like, man, such extreme examples of everything. I don't see God doing any of that kind of thing in my life. Well, there's a reason why these kind of extreme examples were given to us in the Scripture. It's to show us that 
that the extreme power of God and the extreme goodness of God in the extreme things. So that you can see in this situation, a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman and God's incredible power in their life, that is such an extreme display of the power of God so that I know that in whatever context in my life, I know God is capable. That's the point of the stories. It's an extreme display of the power of God so that we go, we have an argument from greater to lesser. That's part of the reason why the Bible is written that way, to encourage it, not so that these grand things would always happen in our life, but because they've happened and they're grand, we know God can work in us. And it's a display of the omnipotence, the power, the strength of God. Look at in verse 1. Abram's 99. He's old. God shows up. And, and what does God say? I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. Now, right in the get-go, God is addressing first and foremost maybe Abram's biggest issue. Because God chooses, chooses how to reveal himself. God knows what name to call himself. We looked at some of the other attributes in the series, and we found out like last week, God used the name Yahweh, which is his personal covenantal name with people. And God used the word Yahweh to represent his transcendence. And so when he talks about his incredible ultimate bigness, he uses the term for his eminence, his smallness. That's intentional. And here, God doesn't show up and go, I am Yahweh. He shows up and says, I am El Shaddai. This is the word, El Shaddai. God Almighty. And what's he addressing? He's addressing Abram's problem, which is, not that Abram knows the power of God, but Abram is struggling to believe in the power of God, to believe that it exists, to trust in it. And I, and I think fundamentally that's us. We don't, I think we all know innately God is powerful. Whenever you think of God or a God, you would, you would think, yeah, of course, he can do whatever he wants. That's not the problem. The problem is, is do I actually trust a God who can do all that he wants? And so he shows up and says, Abram, I'm God Almighty. Why? Because Abram's been wrestling with God's ability to bring about his promise as he's grown older, as if his age is too much for God. But is God's arm in the door jam? Is it short? Is it? No, it's, he's not, it's not Nemo. It's, his arm is strong. He has a strong arm. And so here's this incredible example, and he's approaching Abram, going, Abram, do you not believe how big I am? Have you, not that you've forgotten that I'm strong, but have you forgotten to trust in my strength that your body is not too big for me? And your age is not a big enough roadblock. God Almighty. Now, this word Almighty, El Shaddai, comes from two words, Elohim and Shaddai. That's where we get the word. Elohim is the, is the name for God that typically gets used when God displays great power. Like in creation. And God said, in the beginning, Elohim. And Elohim is, God uses it when he wants to display himself. Here's a, a fascinating thing about Elohim is that it's plural. In, the, in Genesis 1 and 2, it's a plural. It's, it's it not gods as in many gods, but God is in three, right? And it gets revealed that God is in Trinity, 
which means that creation was the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit together in what's called the Godhead, it's called, to create all things. This is Elohim. He refers to himself in the plural. Just drop in a, just drop in a little, just a little note. Hey, by the way, here's a post-it. Keep this in mind. You know, kind of a moment. And even in creation, you find that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters and God is speaking. And then in John 1, we find out that Jesus created it. So you have the entire Trinity and it all gets revealed throughout the scriptures. But it's, but it's plural, which means it's referencing the triune God or a God in Trinity. And then there's Shaddai, which just means powerful, strong. So when God says, I'm God Almighty, we hear this. I am the Trinitarian strong one. Oh, okay. We'll get to why that's... He's talking about the attribute of God being omnipotent, all-powerful, almighty. Now, what does it mean? I think there's four implications here. First implication, God says, I am almighty. Now that, we, we talked about this. One of the things that, that has been my burden every week preaching this series is to show that God is not just a God who does some things, but is a God who is some things. And this is the difference, is that it's not just that God does powerful things. This is incredible. We need to know that God doesn't just do some powerful things. He is in himself powerful. I am almighty. I don't just do almighty things. Now, what does that mean? It means that God's doing always flows from his being. Now, we, we reverse it, don't we? We try to do some things to prove that I am some things, right? But God is all-powerful, and so then, therefore, he works in a powerful way. Now, why is that, why is that important? It's important because we often want God, like Abram did, we often want God to, to, to work some kind of power in our life, right? And we're just waiting for him. But we need to remember that what we have is a God who is powerful, not just a God who's ready to do some things that are powerful. I think that's so impressive. Now, it also refers to his activity. And that his power is always active. Follow the logic. If he is power, right, his power is always active. Look at I am is a statement in the present tense. It's not God was powerful at a certain time in my life or God will be powerful in a certain time. It's that God is powerful right now, right here. His being he is God Almighty with me. It's in the present tense. His Power is always active, always present. We're not waiting on God to accomplish this. It's in the present. Now, if God, God's power is his being and it's always present, then it would follow that it's endless. God is endlessly omnipotent. How do we know that? Because God only exists in the present. See, if we have a God who is just Powerful in the past, but what if we had no trust that he'd be powerful in the future? Or if maybe God was just powerful in the future, but right now he's very limited in what he can do in our life. All of that would be a fallacy of God's omnipotence. It is endless, which means there is no point in which God will no longer be powerful so that you can trust him. And it's always active. Look at Isaiah 40, 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is, an, is the everlasting God. Forever, that's what I'm talking about. 
the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. I mean, how many of us, if we're honest, we'd go, man, is, it, is God taking a nap on me? That's a real thing we feel. We go through something, we face something, we're in a trial, things seem to be kind of spinning out of control or falling apart. We're like, God, are you even, are you napping? I'm like, no, no, God doesn't grow tired ever. His power is endless. I love, there's this little phrase um, in talking about the sovereignty and the power of God, uh, Pastor Charles Spurgeon. He, he looking, uh, you know, sometimes you can look in light and you see all that dust that we're breathing in. You know, which is pretty much skin cells, so enjoy that thought. Hair and skin cells. And sometimes you just see it in the light, and you're like, oh, my gosh. And, and Spurgeon has this great thing. He calls, it, he calls those little things dust motes. And he's saying, he says, God is so powerful and so endless. There's no end to his power that he never grows weary controlling every single one of those dust motes. And it seems so small and insignificant, but here's the thing. How, how, why is it that God can be sovereign in every aspect of our life? Because it doesn't tax him. God can control every single molecule that has ever existed and does exist to this day. And he grows no more tired for it. And he can organize and sovereignly control the dust motes in the air. And at the same time, every aspect of your life. And we go, all right, he doesn't grow weary. He has endless power. And fourthly, his power in this phrase, God Almighty, is limitless. So it's endless and it's limitless. And isn't that really the context of this? That, that God, even as Abram's 99 years old and even as Sarah is 90 years old, God's power is limitless in what he's able to do. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The limitless power of God means that there is no, nothing that frustrates God's ability to be powerful. It's limitless. Somebody say, could he, you know, make a rock and then lift it? You know, it's limitless. He'd make a rock and then he'd lift it and do it all over again. What does Abram do? Now, what I want to do out of Genesis 17 is show you, not, not just teach you more knowledge about the power of God. That's in, the, that's in the name Almighty. We just went through those things. The point of chapter 17 is to see how does Abram live in light of meeting God Almighty. Not just knowing God Almighty, but how does God Almighty, what, what happens to him when he encounters God Almighty. What happens to us when we encounter God Almighty? I'm going to skip to, to verse 3. We'll come back to 2 as well. Uh, then Abram, so he meets God. I'm God Almighty. So God, God meets Abram. Verse 3, then Abram fell on his face. Think about that for a second. The, the response to meeting God Almighty is to fall down. And we've seen this pattern all through Scripture, right? You can point to different moments in which people meet with God or an angel of the Lord. This, um, this is like what they call, what's, what theologians call a theophany, a, an appearance of God. And some maybe even the pre-incarnate Christ right here. This is Jesus before he was born, potentially. 
that as God appears to Abram and Abram talks with God and God goes, I'm God Almighty, Abram. Abram goes, all right, I'm down. I'm down and I cannot get up. Life alert. See, when you meet God Almighty, there's no place for pride. When you meet God Almighty, there's no place for protecting your reputation or what it looks like or your appearances and keeping up your appearances. When you meet God Almighty, you just fall down. Because there there is no way for your pride to make yourself something so that you could stand before God Almighty. If you can stand before God Almighty, you have not met God. If your heart is not led to bowing and worship and falling down and honoring God in incredible awe, I would argue potentially either you have yet to know the God who has saved you or you have not really ever met him. Because that's when like people come to a church and all of a sudden they're like, man, I'm the presence of God was there. And then I gave my life to him. I don't even know what happened. I just couldn't remain the same. You've met God and you've met the power of God and he's almighty. And so then therefore you could not stand. Now, some people might go, but what about grace? Isn't because of now the the grace of God in the New Testament through Jesus, doesn't it mean that like, that I can just, it's more relational now. It's it's not like that anymore, and I would, I would say this. Does the grace of God give us more or less reason to bow? See, some people, we want to use grace to assert our own strength so that we can just be with God however we want to be with Him. We could use Him up. We can talk to Him when we want to talk to Him, but we have no conception of this Almighty God and what this Almighty God has done in grace. And is it not grace, the the death and the the sacrifice of Jesus, does that not bring us more reason to bow, not less? And is it true that God is our friend now? Yes, but is he only our friend? No, he's God over the whole universe. And sometimes we put God in these little categories and we're like, well, he's a friend now. Well, you know what? We don't treat our friends very great. And sometimes we don't treat God very great because we're not really aware of who he is. But when you meet who he is, he is a friend. And he's omnipotent. I wonder when we pray, prayer itself is a response to the omnipotence of God because it means we're weak and I need something outside of me. Do we consider who we're praying to? Do we consider that we're coming before this omnipotent, transcendent, self-sufficient God. Who are we singing to? Who do we talk to? And we just kind of take it so tritely. I'll just come in and sing a couple songs and walk out, and it's done nothing to my heart. It's done nothing to my soul. I'll pray, and I just kind of throw up these breath prayers as if, all right, I'm praying. But God is inviting me to see who he is and who I am. And I'm recognizing that this is the omnipotent God that I'm speaking to. And that I I have any access to him at all is amazing. That we know if you've encountered God, this becomes the natural outpouring of somebody who's met with God. So Abram falls. And when we bow, instead of trying to keep up appearances, or when we bow instead of trying to prove how I'm better or I'm good, 
when we bow to receive and to bow under this God Almighty, what we're doing is making a choice between God is powerful and every other thing that we seek is powerful. Because control is power to us in some way. Success is power to us. Money, wealth, bank account, 401s, retirement. These are all means of power, houses, security, beauty, body, accomplishments, knowledge, degrees, job. Like Just add it up. These are all ways in which we're trying to steal the omnipotence of God for ourselves. Instead of bowing to the only God who has true power. Now, what I love about how this text takes a turn here, because it does. So God says, I'm almighty. Now we ask the question, how does God actually display his almightiness? Well, he's going to tell us, because here's what we might assume. We might assume that God would go, I'm God almighty. And then, you know, like make a storm come or lightning or look at me, you know. That kind of pick up Thor's hammer or something like that. You know, like we, we, would expect, we would expect some kind of display of crazy power. God doesn't do that. God shows us out of this text the display of his omnipotence, not in a way in which we would expect, but in a deeper and more powerful way. And that is the very change to the human heart. Into the into what God does in the soul. See, I think it's way. It is. We want God to like work a miracle, but you know what's harder than healing is raising us from the dead. Spiritually, it was way harder. And here's here's what Abram learns. Abram learns that as he bows, it's in our humility and the power of God that the actual power of God begins to be displayed and known and understood and worshiped in deeper ways. It's a little bit like nuclear power. If you go out and you're digging, you find uranium and, and you know, like your face will melt. But other than that, if you find uranium, it's just raw power. It's like, you know, it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark out there, you know, you'll open the lid, you know, that's what happened if you found uranium. But if you take uranium and you can process it and, and you can make it into rods and you get a reactor and you make lines, all of a sudden this raw power becomes usable and helpful. All of a sudden it's not something that we're just afraid of or we just hold up in awe, but it's something that begins to work itself out in us as our houses get lights and warmed and, and these wires become the means of this power. That's what humility does. When we humble ourselves, it, it, when we humble ourselves and fall before God, he, God has decided, he doesn't have to because he does all that he pleases. God has decided through falling and worshiping God Almighty, that becomes the avenue of his power begin to work in our life. That was his decision. What happens? I'll show you. Abram fell on his face and God said to him, do you see this? Verse four, there's two ways. First one is verse four. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 5, no longer will your name be called Abram, but your name shall become Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. The very first effect of the deeper, more significant power of God is changing Abram's identity. He gives him a new name. Now, this is a thing that happens in the Bible. Paul 
was first Saul, now he's Paul. He met God on the road to Damascus. He met, he met Jesus glowing. It blinded him. He met the Almighty God, right? And then what happens? He gets a new name. Peter got a new name. Sarai, in verse 15, get, becomes Sarah. Even Sarai gets a new name. And, and, and here's the thing. It's not about God just changing names. It's about God giving a new identity. It's about God changing the very being of a person. It is the power of God not to just heal an arm. It is the power of God to change who you are. Can a leopard change his spots, the scripture says? And we go, oh, no. But God can change a leopard's spots. Change, give him a new identity. And it isn't, till, it, isn't just, it isn't till our humility and our bowing does God begin to do the inner work and go from this fearful raw power and creator to inward renewer. My, my favorite one in the Bible is the apostles. In Luke, we find that Jesus prayed all night long and then he appointed the apostles out of a, out of a, a large group of people that were following him. And he appointed the apostles. And the apostles he chose, were, they were disastrous. Some were educated, still dumb. Some were tax collectors. We still hate them. I mean, an IRS guy became an apostle. Oh, my gosh. Power of God. And some were blue-collar workers, no education. And what happens? They become apostles. And, and when God calls them and says, you will be, he's talking about you will be an apostle. Well, they weren't qualified for that role. And you find out even after he calls them apostle, they don't act like apostles, do they? They bicker and fight. I mean, two of them are arguing in front of Jesus, who is the greatest? Jesus is like, this guy with two thumbs, you know? <laughs> me, you losers, me, right? Gosh, Peter keeps putting his foot in his mouth. All of them desert him. These are apostles. But then after the resurrection, what happened? They started preaching the gospel. They gave their lives they, all of them but one, were killed for their faith. What happened? They became the thing that God had called them by what? By the power of God through the resurrection. And what happens in Abram? Now, this is funny. Because if you're listening to Abram, Abram, the word Abram in Hebrew means exalted father. Now, that's funny. Because he never had any kids. You imagine his whole life, his name was dad. Literally, his name was a mug, number one dad. World's best dad. That's Abram. People are giving him mugs for his birthday. Hey, another year's gone by, exalted father. His neighbors are laughing at him. He's a scorn. You got to know this. This is part of the story. His very name means world's best dad. And he doesn't even have a son. He's a joke. But then God pours it on and goes, I'm going to change your name from exalted father to father of nations. <laughs> And his neighbors were like, <laughs> Abraham, yeah, right. You know, like they're mocking him because his name is now father of nations. But here's the great news. This is the power of God. Whatever he calls you, he will make you. So when he calls you son or daughter and you're like, I don't look like a son. I don't look like a daughter. I don't look faithful. I don't look blameless. I don't look pure until the day of Christ. I am a mess. I am a joke. And God goes, oh, no, no, no. I will make you. I will turn you into the thing that you can't turn yourself because the, I have the power to do that. 
So when the enemy comes to you and goes, man, you're a joke. You're not a Christian. You go, no, no, I'm not, but God makes me one. And whatever God calls me, that's what I become. Your, your, your family comes to you and goes, man, you became a Christian, but you're no less a hypocrite. You go, no, it's terrible, right? But praise be to God that what God calls me, I become. So I am a son. I am a daughter. When the enemy whispers and pulls up your sin and makes you feel like a failure, yes. Praise be to God. And when the world looks at you and says, you're a joke, you're a fool. A son and a daughter of God, faithful and blameless, white as snow. Look at all the things that God calls us. Well, he accomplishes it by his power. That's his omnipotence. And that's way deeper than some miracle, water to wine. You being called a son or daughter is way more profound than if you got to see the miracle of water to wine. And notice this, that the phrase that Abraham calls, or the phrase that God calls Abraham is in the past tense, which is another way of saying, you are a father of nations already. Because God is accomplishing something that Abram had no idea, and he's going to do it at 99. And so at 99, he's been a joke his whole life, but the power of God is about to do something radical and turn him into the thing that God has promised already. Man, so praise be to God for the power in us. That's how the omnipotence begins to work its way in our life, and raw power becomes something deeper and intimate of God changing our very identity. But wait, that's not all. In the words of Billy Mays. He does something deeper even more. Look how he goes. Not only does he get a new name, look what happens. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Man, there's Christ. You want to see Jesus in the Old Testament? Kings will come from you. Meaning the covenant of David and then ultimately the new covenant through Christ. Verse 7, and I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout every generation or through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offsprings after you. And I'll give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourners and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. This next part of the power of God gets displayed in the covenant or the promises that God makes to Abraham. And when you hear the word covenant, what I want you to hear is relationship by the power of God. It's unilateral. God makes a promise. It's up to him by his power to accomplish it. So when you hear covenant, I want you to hear the power of God providing relationship with people. So that we can become his people and he can become our God. And I want you to see from the very beginning, look at back in God Almighty. Look what he says, verse 1. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That I may make a covenant between me and you and my and multiply you greatly. Here's the problem. At the end of... 17 and verse 8, it says that this is an everlasting covenant. There's no off-ramp. But at the beginning, it says you have to walk blameless and be blameless. And we've just said, what happens? God makes people what they are not by his power. 
integral in this whole thing is the failure of Abraham and the goodness and the power of God to overcome it. Because up to this point, Abram already wasn't blameless. He was a joke. He brought in a new wife. He, he, broke, the, he broke the covenant in the way that God had set up marriage. He had, he had gone outside of how God had designed marriage, and yet here's God still inviting him in. That's great news. He's already not blameless. And we're going to find out that he continues not to be blameless. He's going to lie. He's going to offer his wife up um, multiple times to prominent people in order to save his own skin. What a disgusting man. And this is the guy that God's building. Why? Because it has nothing to do with him. It's because the power of God is going to do something to overcome anything that would come in between relationship with God and him. And the power of God is not only that he'll name you, the power of God is that he will keep you. And the power of God is that he will overcome anything that gets in the way of it. When you humble yourself before God and go, look, God, almighty, have mercy on me, that invigorates the power of God to work in such a way, and he will never let you go. And is Christ not the greatest demonstration of this power? See, it was the attributes of God's wisdom which created the plan of redemption to forgive man, but it was the power, the omnipotence of God that completed it. There's this moment in Scripture, and it breaks me up almost every time I get to it. And, it. and once in the Gospels, and once in Acts, and it happens in the garden scene. Judas breaks in as the betrayer. Everybody flees. And the Scripture says this, or Jesus says this to the disciples. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Acts, Paul's preaching in a sermon that Paul preaches, comes back and says, Jesus was killed by the hands of the lawless. And it, I, it gets me every time because the omnipotent God allows himself to be captured by the hands of sinners. So when you're looking in your life, you're like, I want God to do a miracle. Here's the miracle, and it's greater than the miracle, that God had the power not in what he could do, but in what he didn't do. And just like my dad on the door jam, the power of that story in my father is not in the power for him to have fixed the situation. It was the power to restrain it for the love of my neighbor and to just slowly talk him down and encourage him and pray for him. I never saw something more calm in my whole life as a man is trying to get our family. My dad's like, yes, Steve, I know. I know, Steve. I know you're angry. It was the power in my dad, not in what he could do, but what he didn't do. And it is the power not in what God can do in your life. It's what he didn't do, and that is he didn't fight. He didn't demonstrate his power by breaking jaws. They didn't even have a chance. He he didn't, like, you know, Conor McGregor him. He could have, but he let, you know, he, he let them take him. The hands of sinners captured omnipotent God. Let that sink in. 
It was the power of God to leave heaven and embrace flesh and be betrayed and delivered into our hands to be killed in order to ensure our salvation so that he would overcome everything, including our own pride and our own rebellion and our own sin and our own believing that we were more powerful than Jesus. You know how crazy it is that any of those soldiers thought they had any power and they mocked him just like I'm sure people mocked Abram. Oh, really? You are? You are the son of God? Then come off that cross. It was a temptation to display the omnipotence of God. But the omnipotence of God was displayed in not coming off that cross far greater than if he did. To break through anything that would keep us from covenant relationship. Now, the passage ends by worship. See, it's not just about knowing God is powerful. It's about believing God is powerful. What happens when you believe God is powerful? It changes the way you worship God. In verse 9 through 14 is about this covenant that will be symbolized through circumcision. I know, here we go, circumcision, you're welcome. In verse 22 through 27 is about how they willingly accepted this sign of circumcision. Listen to what it says in verse 22. And when he had finished talking with them, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, who was outside the promise, but now is inside, right? And all those born in his house, Every male, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that day. He was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. I'm just reading the Bible. I know, I keep repeating it. And Ishmael's son was 13, 26. That very day, Abraham, his son, and every man in his household was circumcised. That would be a weird day. Adam's like, hey, everybody meet at the shed at 3 a.m. <laughs> you know, After work, just come by the shed. We got something to talk about. They're like, Abraham, what's with the knife? Don't worry about it. They're like, circumcision? Can't we just like get a tattoo? Wear a bracelet. What would Abraham do? Like what? WWAD. You know what? What would it? Can we do something else? And, and no, it's circumcision. And they willingly... Go there. And there's two things here that I'd like to point out. One, and we're, and we're meant to feel this, not literally, but we're meant to feel it. One, when you meet with God Almighty, you get a sign. There's a sign. It becomes clear that you've met with God. There's a sign. They couldn't meet with God and then just carry on. They carried a sign in their own body. But when you meet with God, you walk away different. You come away different. There, there is evidence in your life that you have met with God. Listen to Colossians 2.11 about circumcision. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Thanks be to God. By putting off the body of flesh, it's no longer in the flesh, but by the circumcision of Christ, which means this, that the circumcision was a symbol, a picture of their faith. And for us now, it's no longer in the flesh. None of you are going to have to be circumcised at the end of this service. 
But what you are being called to is to walk away with a sign that you've met with Almighty God. And what is that sign? Faith in Christ. If you've met with God this morning, you walk out of here with the sign of faith. And how? what is the consequence of that faith? The consequence of that faith is to match the limitless power of God with a limitless response to God. Was it weird that they got circumcised and circumcision existed as worship? Yeah, that's weird. But it's meant to be weird. It's meant to be so over the top, but that these people would be so committed. And because they met with God, they're like, I'll do that, I guess. The sign is faith. The question is, is is your faith in measurement to the limitless power of God in your life? Or to ask it alternatively is, what part of your faith is limited and conditional? When you say that your faith is in a limitless, unconditional power of God. What is it in your life God can't do today? Are you unsavable? No. Your faith becomes the fruit of the reality of the limitless power of God. And so many of us in the church are like, God, I'll give you a little bit. You're limitless. You're, every, you're, you're all powerful. And yet I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm going to hold some of that. This morning, the text is calling us to fall down. Repent of the small vision of the omnipotence of God and to ask us that our faith by his power would be limitless in whatever God would desire and whatever God wants in our entire life. Do you believe in a God almighty this morning? Lord Jesus, you are so good better than we know, better than we deserve, more powerful than we realize. And your greatest power displayed was the measured response of Jesus to be crucified and buried. He could have called angels. He could have defended his name. He's ruler over all things, and yet he allowed himself to be captured in our hands, believing we're so big and we're so powerful, we're omnipotent, in order to overcome whatever may come between us and your covenant relationship with us. I pray, God Almighty, that you you will heal people this morning. You will encounter people this morning but the real work the work you're most interested in is the work that you died to provide which is a new name a new identity blameless and pure and holy and inseparable with you do that work in us this morning amen